This week I did a Google search on the little phrase, do what feels right. I got over 18 million hits. I didn't look at all those sites, by the way. (laughs) But I thought that's pretty reflective of our age. Our age is about doing what feels right. It's whatever in the moment feels right, that's what I should live for. And that really is the spirit of our age in which we live. But as Christians, we are part of something far bigger. We're part of the great movement of God throughout all of history. You see, we're part of his story, history, because he is really the author and finisher of history. And the scriptures reflect that story of God at work in the world. Begins, of course, with the great story of creation, that everything is here because God created it. God put it here. And the second great movement is the fall. Though God created everything and created it good, yet man rebelled. And so every one of us are born into sin. Every one of us are born corrupt, twisted, fallen, the fall. But the third great movement of history of God's story is redemption. And redemption began with God reaching out to one man, Abraham. As he began to work in Abraham's life and call him out and give him the promises that one day he would make a great nation. And he began to create a people of the people of Israel. But Israel rebelled in their fallenness. And everything began to point to the coming of Messiah. And then the center point of all redemption history, Jesus came. He was born, he lived, he died, and he rose again. And that becomes the center point of all history. And then, continuing the story of redemption, from there on, it's what the Scripture calls the last days. And we are in the last days. Began when Jesus rose from the dead, it continues until he returns. We are in that period But what we look forward to in the future is the second coming of Christ. You see, we are part of something that is part of all of this. Creation, the fall, redemption going on now as God calls people to himself, creates a people for his own name, ultimately looking looking forward to the second coming. And so we as his people look forward to that. We're not to be a people who lives for what feels right. We are a people who is living for the kingdom to come. We pray for that kingdom to come. Jesus taught us to. We want that kingdom to come. We're living in this last days. And we look forward to Jesus coming back and bringing justice, bringing judgment on evil and on sin and on those who have rebelled against Him, and bringing a marvelous day of reunion for believers who have trusted Him, that one day we'll be with Him, with all those throughout history who have trusted in God. And we will be together forever with Him. That's our hope. And it's very important as we are studying these books, we studied First Thessalonians and now Second Thessalonians, it's very clear, Paul's very concerned that that church of Thessalonica and, and us as well, that we think properly about the second coming of Christ because it affects how we live our lives today. 
It's the next great event. It's what we look forward to and we need to think properly about the second coming. It's meant to give us hope and stability in a crazy world. And so how we think about the second coming is important. So in our passage today in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we are exploring more of the second coming. God wants us to be awake. He wants us to be alert. He wants us to be aware of what's coming, to not live like the world around us, but to be aware that He is coming and He is coming back soon. Now imagine that you're looking forward to Jesus coming back and finally setting everything right, and then you're told that He's already come. You missed it. (laughs) Sorry. He's already come back. Well, the Thessalonians were being taught that. Their theology wasn't that clear. They weren't sure about it. But, you know, that's happened throughout history. A number of groups have said, well, Jesus already came back. You just missed it. Jehovah's Witnesses, a cult, teaches that. Teaches that Jesus actually returned in 1914. It was a secret coming, so only they knew about it. But that was it. He will not return again. He's already come. And if you follow that kind of teaching, it means you're missing out on everything that God has promised us in the second coming. So the Thessalonians were confused about that. False teachers were saying that Jesus had already come back and their faith was being shaken up. And they were confused. Now, Paul had said, we studied this in 1 Thessalonians, that when Christ returns, it'll be like a thief in the night. Well... That's kind of secretive, right? Of course, in that same passage, he says, oh, and when he comes, it'll be with a shout and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of the archangel and everyone will know. But they were confused about that. They weren't real clear. And so their faith was being shaken up. They wondered if they had missed it. But Jesus, in our, Paul in our passage today, says that two things have to happen before Jesus will return. Two things have to happen before Jesus will return. So let's look at these together in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now we request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you. Let's stop there. Paul reminds them that, okay, I want to remind you what this is all about. He says, let no one disturb you about this. And he reminds us that what's coming is the coming of Jesus. The parousia is the theological word. It's It's like the entrance of a king. When he comes, he will come to set up his kingdom. So don't be disturbed. He is coming. And it'll be a marvelous day, he says, when we will all be gathered unto him. That day of reunion we're looking forward to. When finally we belong fully. When finally we see him face to face. When finally we'll be reunited with the saints all through history. And we'll get to ask those questions of Paul and Abraham and others that, you know, we've been wondering about why they did this or said that or whatever. Because we'll be with them in the presence of the Lord forever. 
pretty much every uh, summer, almost every summer, I gather with my family. There's six kids and all our grandkids and everybody, and we all gather together at the coast. We're looking forward to it later this summer again, and it's a wonderful time. We love that time of getting together. But that pales in comparison to the reunion that's coming to be with Christ. And the best part of it is, it's not a potluck. All the food's provided. (laughs) It'll be the wedding feast of the Lamb. It'll be awesome. And it will be a time of celebration. So we're looking forward to this. But Paul's concerned that they'll be shaken from the truth because they've heard somehow, through some kind of message, that Christ had already come. The day of the Lord had already come. So he's concerned that they not be quickly shaken. That word shaken has the idea of a strong wind coming and shaken, shaking fruit off a tree that's not yet ripe. It's not ready to fall. But it's being shaken because the wind is so strong and he's concerned that they're being shaken from their solid foundation of truth by this lie that's being taught. So Paul now clarifies for us what must happen before Christ returns so that they'll know, okay, couldn't have happened yet because these two things haven't happened. Now let me say a couple things about this passage. It's a very difficult passage. Uh... Leon Morris, a Bible scholar, says this. It's unfortunate for us that we have no means of knowing what what he, Paul, had already said to them. For what he writes is full of allusions to his oral teaching. He had taught them verbally, and in this passage he reminds them of some things, but he only alludes to it, so we don't know exactly what he taught them. So Leon Morris goes on to say, The result is that this passage is probably the most obscure and difficult In all of Paul's writings, (laughs) and the many gaps in our knowledge have given rise to the most extravagant speculations. So you ready to dig in? Well, let's do it. Because there are some things that are clear in this passage. It doesn't give us all the details, but it gives us some things that are clear. So Paul says this, before Jesus comes back, First of all, there must be what he calls the rebellion or the apostasy. Verse 3 again, let no one in any way deceive you, for it, the coming of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes first. The apostasy. What is that? Well, we know that word. We know that word apostasy. Um, It's, again, a theological term, but it, it means to turn away. And it can mean rebellion, a rebellion, a turning away from God. Now, is this talking about people in the church who are part of the body of Christ? At least they come to church and they seem committed to the church who walk away from God. Or is it talking about in general, all of society turning their backs on God and rebelling against him? We don't really know. I tend to think it's both. What we do know is that there'll be this huge rebellion. There'll be this time when people will turn their backs on God, walk away from Him and say, no, I don't want anything to do with God. A turning from the truth and a turning from the worship of God. So Paul's saying, don't be surprised when that happens, folks. Don't be surprised when the people around you get more and more antagonistic to your Christian faith. Don't be surprised when people turn away from 
God. Now, he's not talking about true believers. Because as he makes clear later in the passage, true believers are his. They're kept by him. They will not turn away. They will not be lost. But Scripture also teaches that there's many involved in the church who have never given their lives fully to Christ. They are not true believers. But he says, don't be surprised. What's this mean for us? Don't be surprised if Christianity gets less popular, if many turn against it, if people leave the church in droves. There is a time coming before Christ returns when that will happen. So he says, don't be surprised. God isn't surprised. So don't be deceived by that. Don't be afraid or somehow think that God isn't right or true. Don't give in to fear, but expect it. It's interesting to observe now more and more in our culture how that's happening, that people are turning away from Christianity more and more in our Western culture. Now, the gospel is still expanding amazingly in Latin America and Africa, certain parts of the world, but not here. People's faith seems to be growing cold in the Western part of the world, it seems like. So there is this going on to some degree even in our culture now. And I think we're finding it's more of a post-Christian culture and we will find more people antagonistic to our faith as time goes on. I think this whole 9-11 and the terrorism, Islamic terrorists, I think for many people in their minds, any religion suddenly becomes suspect and dangerous, especially anybody who's fanatical about their religion. So if you want to live for Christ fully for Him, you will find people becoming more and more antagonistic. So, Paul says, don't be surprised. Don't be deceived by that. Don't be fooled. Don't be surprised. Expect it. The rebellion, the apostasy will happen before Christ comes back. Secondly, what must happen before Christ comes back is the man of lawlessness, he says. Verse 3 again. It will not happen, it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And then he goes on to explain in this passage about who this person is. There's some characteristics. He says, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And then Paul says, don't you remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Now, I wish we had more of what Paul actually said to them. We'd have more detail of what he's referring to here. But he makes it very clear. There's a man of lawlessness who must come. Others, John, for example, call this man of lawlessness the Antichrist. It's a reference to the Antichrist. So who is this man of lawlessness, this Antichrist who must come, be revealed before Jesus returns? Paul doesn't use the term Antichrist, but it's the same person. You know, if you look in Scripture, there are many Antichrist figures that are prophesied about. If you look at Daniel, he says one will come and desecrate the temple. He's proclaiming, prophesying, in about 500 B.C., about Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian ruler who came and desecrated the temple in 168 B.C. and sacrificed a pig on the altar just to desecrate it. 
the general Pompey came and desecrated the temple, set up his standards in it when he took Israel in 63 B.C. Then Jesus came and he prophesied about a time when the temple would be desecrated, the abomination of desolation would be set up and the temple would be destroyed. What's he talking about? He was prophesying about A.D. 70. Then John, after the temple had been destroyed, prophesied in 1 John and then in the book of Revelation about an Antichrist who would come. And it's pretty clear in the book of Revelation, he's especially focusing on Rome, the nation of Rome. So there have many, been many kind of pre-Antichrists along the way. And throughout church history, people have said, well, I think it's this or that or this person or, or this, that person. In the early church, they thought it was Rome. It was the empire, Roman Empire. But then it collapsed. And in the Middle Ages, they thought it was Muhammad. It was the Islamic nation, particularly Muhammad was the Antichrist. Because in the Middle Ages, if you know your church history at all, the, the uh, Muslims had taken the Holy Land, taken Israel, and that's why the Crusades happened, because the Christians wanted to go take it back from the Antichrist was how they viewed it. A little later, during the Reformation, Martin Luther, we sang Martin Luther's hymn, Mighty Fortress, a little while ago. He and others, John Calvin and others, thought the Antichrist was the Pope because the Catholic Church was very corrupt in those days. And they saw that the Pope was antagonistic to true Christianity in their view. More recently, it's been surmised that maybe some political figures have been the Antichrist. Hitler, Stalin... If you get on a website, websites, and I just googled Antichrist, there's websites that proclaim George Bush as the Antichrist, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Russian President Putin, uh, the current Pope, um, and on and on. I mean, we don't know. Okay? There's been many speculations. But is it a political figure? What is it? You see, we don't really know. But there's been speculation. There have been many pre-Antichrists in a sense. But the, the Antichrist that's prophesied here is yet to come. Well, what's he like? How will we recognize him? Well, notice some things that are given, that are give us characteristics of what he was like. First, he's called the man of lawlessness. He's the man of lawlessness. So one characteristic of this figure that's coming is that he's opposed to law. In a sense, he puts himself above the law. He changes the law. He thinks the law doesn't apply to him. And maybe you've known people like that, whom the law really doesn't apply to. They feel like they can do what they want and it doesn't really apply to them. Well, this Antichrist will be one whom the law doesn't apply to in his thinking. He's above the law. Secondly, it says... And this is interesting, the way Paul describes him in verse 3. He's a man of lawlessness that is revealed, the son of destruction. He wants us to recognize right away that right from the beginning, this Antichrist is doomed. He will be destroyed. Son of, and it's a Hebrew 
terminology. It means this, he's characterized by destruction. He causes destruction, but he also will be destroyed. He's doomed from the very beginning. No matter how powerful he looks, don't be fooled, he says. He will be destroyed. Then we see that he's opposed to all religion, who opposes every so-called God or object of worship. He will not embrace any religion. He will be opposed to all religion. He won't submit to any organized religion. But instead, he makes himself out to be the object of worship, exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. He takes the very place of God and people will worship him as God. says that he takes his seat, place of leadership, in the temple. Now, scholars really differ on this. Does that mean that it's talking about the Jerusalem temple? We aren't sure. Uh, there is no Jerusalem temple now, as we know. It's been destroyed. Is it literal that maybe somehow the temple will be rebuilt? Some people think so. Or is it figurative, saying the temple is the place where God has always dwelt, and so he will take his place in place of God. He will take God's place. That's the way I tend to view it. It's figurative. Um, but regardless, he will be arrogant. He will declare himself to be God and he will take his place in God's seat. Now, for us, we may go, that's foolish. Why would anyone see somebody like that and be willing to worship him? Well, we'll see why a little further on. So what we see about this coming one, this Antichrist, is that he opposes the law and he opposes religion. He opposes uh, ethics, morality, and he opposes all religion as well and makes himself the one who is over all else. Is he a political figure? Perhaps, probably. Um, it's interesting to me that he opposes the two things that are their most stabilizing force in all society. They're the foundation for healthy society, right? Law, morality, and religion, belief in God. And that whenever those two are taken out of a society, church history shows this, human history shows this, when those begin to decline, morality declines and religion declines, then societies collapse on themselves. Can America be far behind? So he opposes law and God. Well, that's his, those are some of his characteristics. Let's talk about his revealing, verse 6 through 8. And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So he will be revealed at some point. But he says right now there's a mystery of lawlessness at work, Paul says, that this whole idea of lawlessness, this sense of turning your back on God, of, of resisting God, of rebelling against God, of wanting to push off law and morality, 
He said, it's already at work. You can see it in our culture. You can see it anywhere in the world. That's part of our fallen nature. He says that mystery of lawlessness is already at work. There's a battle between good and evil, between truth and deceit going on already. We find ourselves consumed with materialism, with self as God, with false religions, with humanism, and on and on. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work in our culture, in our world. But, he says, it's currently restrained. There is one who restrains it. Who is the restrainer? I don't know. (laughs) Again, scholars have come up with all kinds of ideas. Is it the church, maybe? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it Rome? Is it law? The principle of law that restrains this lawlessness from just getting completely out of control? What is it? Well... I don't know. Paul may have in mind the emperor Caligula, who 10 years before he wrote Second Thessalonians, was a madman. I mean, he was the emperor of Rome, but he was crazy. And he declared himself to be God. And he said, everybody in my empire has to worship me. And just to prove it to the Jews, he ordered that a statue of himself be set up in the Holy of Holies in the temple. This was about A.D. 40. But it didn't happen because Roman law, the legislature, the representatives and those who had power said, no, you are not going to create that kind of rebellion among the Jews right now. And they did not let him do it. They restrained him. And he died a year later in his madness, in his foolishness. So Paul may have that in mind. I think perhaps that's what he's thinking of that restrains the mystery of lawlessness. It's simply the principle of law. It's, it's that we do have laws and that people understand what's right and good. And he's restrained for now, but there will be a time when he declares himself to be God when he, and he sets himself above the law that lawlessness will be set free. The restrainer will be removed and then the Antichrist will be revealed. So we'll degenerate into more and more lawlessness and then I think what may happen is that as people get more and more afraid as they see more and more lawlessness you know what happens when people get afraid they want somebody that will take care of them that's what happened in Germany they looked to Hitler why would people follow a Hitler because they were afraid of what was going on and he stirred up fear so that they would follow him and trust him as their leader and give him more and more power I think a similar thing will happen with Antichrist. People will be afraid at the lawlessness and they'll be so afraid and want security and want to be safe that they'll give power to whoever it is, this Antichrist who is coming. But why would they really trust him? Why would they give him that kind of power? Well, look at verses 9 through 12. That is, the one who's coming, this Antichrist, is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Why would people trust this Antichrist? Because he will come with power. 
Folks, Satan does have power to do counterfeit miracles. So it says here, and this Antichrist will express a power that will cause people to worship him. I don't know if he'll do healings, if he'll, what his miracles will be like. But Paul says, don't be deceived, O believers. Satan has power too, and this Antichrist will express that through signs and wonders and powers. So people will be drawn to him. And not only that, will he do signs and wonders, but he will be able to deceive all unbelievers. All unbelievers will be taken in by him. He'll trick them into worshiping him. Now, if you read these verses carefully, there's a progression for unbelievers. It begins at the end of uh, verse 10. It says, they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For unbelievers, it begins with rejecting the truth and just not receiving the love of the truth. Not saying, Lord, when when they hear the gospel, they say, that's it. I will submit myself to God. I will submit to my need for salvation. I will receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Unbelievers reject that. And then step two is they begin to be deceived and believe lies. You see, if you don't receive the truth, then you become deceived and believe lies. If you don't believe, you will be deceived. That's just the way it is. You either believe the truth and that opens your eyes to reality or you turn away and you begin to become a fool. And you embrace things that are lies, that are false, that are deceitful. So they don't receive the truth. They become deceived and they begin to delight in wickedness. They delight in wickedness. They took pleasure in wickedness. The end of verse 12. They delight in wickedness. They think that wickedness is okay. That it's the way to live. And then it says God gives them a deluding influence. He sends upon them a deluding influence so they will believe even more lies. Why does God do that? I'm not really sure, but I think to make it more clear, the division between truth and falsehood. And then finally, they will be judged. They will be judged. So notice the progression. If you turn away from truth and you don't embrace it, the result is you become a fool. You start believing lies. You believe wickedness is okay. And it's a digression. It's a you slide further and further down until God even is in control of your foolishness at that point. He only gives us what we've already chosen. That's what God does in his love, in his grace. He gives us the freedom to choose, but when we reject him, we become deceived. We believe lies. Folks, what's coming will be a difficult time for believers. It will be difficult. It will be hard. There will be a great rebellion in our world against God, against truth. There will be a leader come, a man of lawlessness, an antichrist who opposes us and opposes God and all unbelievers will be taken in. Right now, many unbelievers are very sympathetic to the Christian faith. That won't be the case for us 
And this day is coming, folks. We will stand alone. And I don't believe it's real far off. So what can keep us strong and stable as believers? What can keep us strong in the face of what's coming? I want to give you six things to think about. How you can be strong in the face of the apostasy and the Antichrist that will come because it could come at any time. Six things you can do. Number one, remember God will win in the end. God will win in the end. Verse eight, the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. When Jesus shows up, the Antichrist will look like he's in charge. He looks like he's winning. Jesus shows up and you know what? He literally blows him away. with the breath of his mouth. God will win in the end. God's in control. Okay? And that's number two. (laughs) Remember that God is in control now. You notice in verse 11, the reason God, God will send upon them a deluding influence. There's a restrainer at work now. That's all part of God. God is in control now. So remember, he'll win in the end. Remember, God's in control now. Third, be awake. Be awake. Be alert. Know what's coming. That'll help give you stability and strength. Don't live for yourself, (laughs) but be aware that God's at work. Be awake. Look for God's hand at work. Be awake. Fourth, be prepared. Be prepared. There's a young man who's running a little later today from Boise, Nick Simmons. You may have heard that name or... He's uh, my son ran against him for years. They were competitors. Well, now he's being dubbed the next great distance hope for the United States. He's running in U.S. nationals today in the 800. Um, But you think about that. He's having a great test today, seeking to win the national championship. He's got the second fastest time in the world this year in the 800. Uh, Amazing runner. But you know what? He didn't get there without a lot of preparation. He runs 70 miles a week at least distance, plus sprints, plus lifts weights, plus does all his other workouts. He does a lot to prepare for the test he'll be running later today. It's the same for us. You see, we're not just going to show up and be able to handle it when Antichrist shows up. We've got to be preparing now. How do we prepare? Read the Bible. Pray, get strong in the Lord, get strong in your faith. Maybe life is fairly easy for you now in your Christian faith, but it won't be. And you won't be prepared unless you're preparing now. Walk closely with God. Read your Bible. Study it. Live out what God shows you. Let Him change you and make you strong now so that you'll be prepared for what's coming. Fifth, share the gospel. Because unbelievers will be judged and deceived, but God has chosen people. There are people out there who are willing to embrace the truth if they just hear it. So we need to look for those who are open, who are willing to receive the love of the truth and share it with them. So we need to to reach out in love and share the gospel and look for those. Many will reject it, but many will receive it. So share the gospel. And number six... Keep worshiping. 
Keep meeting with other believers because that's how we get strong in the Lord. Celebrate the true God. Hear His Word taught. Gather together. Remember the cross. Anticipate the second coming. As we gather together, it helps make us strong and we need to do that. Don't get isolated in your faith. Get into a small group where you can grow and be strong. Keep worshiping. Keep seeking the Lord. Keep hearing the Word taught. Keep using your gifts. Keep serving. Keep being part of the body of Christ so that you'll be prepared when the rebellion comes. Jesus is coming back and He'll set all things right. But before He does, a couple things are going to happen and it will not be easy. Are you prepared? Are you prepared?